finishing a series we started two weeks ago um, called The Happiness Challenge. And um, according to research, the number one thing that everybody in the world wants from all nations, from all backgrounds, everybody wants to be happy. <laughs> it's not a big surprise, is it? What might be surprising to you is only a third of Americans are actually happy. Um, and it might be surprising to you that uh, our environment, our circumstances don't do very much to provide happiness. Listen to this classic study a psychologist did that found recent winners of the Illinois State Lottery were no happier than recent victims of accidents who were consequently disabled. It's a classic study, which proves, once again, what we've been sharing the whole series, external factors have very little to do with your happiness. So the dream job, the dream car, the dream bank account, the dream spouse, the dream whatever, uh, according to research, it affects your happiness by about 10%. And then that, uh, it'll make you a little happier for a little while, and then it'll all be gone. So what, we, what I've been saying to you in this series is, I think the Bible teaches us what the secret to happiness is. And here's what it is. The secret to happiness is living an others-focused life. So when you focus on other people's happiness, it's like a boomerang effect. It actually makes you happy. But when you focus on your own happiness, you're never gonna, you'll be miserable. You'll never have enough, achieve enough to be happy. The New Testament tells us, that you see hints of this all over, but Luke 6.27, we'll read this morning, or 6.38, sorry. Given it will be given to you, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So when you give blessings away, you actually become more blessed. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Now, um, in the New Testament, we find 51 statements that we call one another statements. Bear one another's burden. Welcome one another. Uh, help one another. And so we've used these statements to, to kind of describe, okay, great. How do you live an others-focused life? Well, the New Testament tells us at least 51 times how. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. So two weeks ago, we said encourage one another. And we ended the message with a challenge. I asked you every day this week, when you wake up, pray and say, Lord, give me someone that I can encourage today. And so we did that for a week. Last week, pray for one another. And I said the same thing. Hey, this week, and by the way, how did it go? How did it go when you found someone to pray for, either pray with them or pray for them? See, the thing is, if you just keep that kind of lifestyle up, you'll get ha more and more happy because what's going to happen is you're going to be living that others-focused life. So today, I want to give you one more. We're not going to do all 51. I'm going to give you one more of the one. How many of you are glad about that? You glad about that? I'm going to give you one more of the one another's, and then we'll end the series. But I want, to, um, I want to give it to you in the context of an event that happened in the life of Jesus with one of his disciples. So when Jesus walked the earth, he entered into an intense religious climate with legalism. It was very judgmental. It was very exclusive. The religious crowd honestly didn't have much time for Jesus except when they were trying to trap him. But an unsuspecting man by the name Levi did have time for Jesus. 
Now, he didn't fit with the religious crowd at all. Levi um, didn't, didn't fit the mold that you would think about. He was a tax collector. He betrayed his own people in order to get rich. He was an outsider. He was rejected by, by Jews. And everybody knew you couldn't trust him. Because you're not going to trust somebody that betrays their own people for material gain. But here's what happened when he met Jesus in Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Now, Levi, uh, the name you probably better know him by is Matthew, who became an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the, one of the 12 disciples as we know him. Can you imagine a crook, a betrayer, a rejected outsider, Becoming a disciple? How many of you think it was a rocky transition? He didn't just pop up from the table, follow Jesus. He's like, I'm a, I'm a good little disciple. There was probably a transition, don't you think? Well, Jesus, early in that relationship, said to Matthew, he said, hey, you know what? Why don't we throw a party, and why don't we invite your old friends? And Matthew was like, Jesus, I like you and everything, but I don't think you understand who my, they're not the church going kind of people. They're salty. They have loose morals. And, and I don't even know what the other disciples would think about them. So Jesus said, great, let's invite both groups. My disciples and your old friends, let's put them together and let's throw a party. And here's what happened. Look at verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, at Levi's house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. This isn't a backyard hangout. This is a great banquet. This is fancy. This is, this is, this is a high-class event. There's a large crowd. It's, it's the happy hour crowd in the Sunday school class. Brought them together for a party. And Jesus was thrilled. And the religious leaders were not. Verse 30 says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And about that time, the, the old Matthew's old friends slid their chairs back. They knew the drill. They'd been, they'd been to this kind of party before. I know, we're not good enough. We don't belong here. We've been told that all our life, so they headed for the door. On their way to the door, Jesus stands up and stops them. Where are you guys going? Wait a minute. And listen to what Jesus says. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong, they ask, why do you eat and drink? And then verse 31, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, one of the most difficult questions you and I will ever ask ourselves is, what do we do with the Levi's in our life? Not the genes. Just want to throw that out there. Because I know somebody's going to be like, it's, that's, it's not genes. What do we do with the Matthews? What do we do with the people who don't fit? What do we do with the people that are difficult in our life? So your Levi, your Matthew, is the person who you disagree with the most. They don't look like you. They have different values than you do. They have a different philosophy of life. They have a different code. They have different ideas about God. They're part of the other political party. They drive a car you wouldn't be caught dead in. They believe things you can't understand. You know who your Levi is? Your Levi is your opposite you. 
and they drain all your joy. They steal all your happiness, and they bring tension and social awkwardness in the room. And the opposite, your opposite you could be your boss. Your opposite you could be your, uh, a coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be a family friend. It could be somebody even closer. Your opposite you could be your parent or your child. Your opposite you is the one who you just don't really know what to do with. How does God teach us to respond to the opposite us in our life? Look at Romans 15, 7. Accept one another. Here's the one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You, you, many of you know the New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. So in order to understand the full meaning of what's written there, you often have to go back to the original language and say, now what did that word mean in Greek? And so this word accept, it's much stronger than tolerate. And it's much stronger than coexist. John Stott said it this way, it's welcoming someone into your fellowship and into your heart. That's what accept means. So, Here's the thing with all these one another's. We all hear them and we all say, yes, that's right, that's correct. That's the way you know, it should be. I would probably be happier if I did that. The question is how? So let me give you three ways this morning to practice this principle of happiness we call acceptance. Number one, strive to balance grace and truth. Do you know you and I so badly want to choose one of those? We want to pick one. It's not grace or truth. It's grace and truth. And if you want to know which one is yours that you prefer, just check how you felt when you read the statement. What do you mean balance truth? Truth doesn't have to be balanced. It's true. Well, that's yours. That's your extreme. That's the way you go too far. What do you mean grace? How can you give a person too much grace? Well, that's yours. <laughs> That's the, that's the way that you go too far. John 1.14 says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's not multiple choice. If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to be full of grace and you got to be full of truth. And Jesus did it better than anybody. He told the adulterous woman, he gave her grace and said, neither do I condemn you. And then he gave her truth and said, go and sin no more. To the disciples, he gave grace and he washed their feet. And then he gave the disciples truth and he said, now you go and wash other people's feet. To Nicodemus, he gave grace because he, met, he was willing to meet with him in, at night in secret. But then he gave him truth and said, unless someone's born again, they can't enter the kingdom of God. Grace and truth. Now let's talk about the truth crowd for a little bit. Because I know a lot of people that like to tell people the truth. Here's the problem with bending that direction too much. It oftentimes sounds something like this. Well, I'm just going to tell them how it is. Well, there's two problems with that. One is there's no grace in that statement. Two, it assumes you actually know how it is. What if you don't know how it is? What if you just think you know how it is, but you don't? You're claiming to know all the comprehensive knowledge about a situation that there is to possibly ever know. There's no humility in it. 
I'm just gonna tell them how it is as if you're the, you're the register of truth. I, I think a good rule to follow is only tell people the truth when you genuinely believe that they have more to gain from it than you do. Because sometimes we tell people the truth because it makes us feel better. But it actually doesn't help them at all. So what about grace? Sometimes we go too far that way and we say, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be the bigger person and I'm just gonna let it go because that's the gracious thing to do. That's fantastic if you're actually able to let it go. But if by letting it go, what you actually mean is I'm gonna avoid it and I'm gonna avoid them and I'm gonna, in my heart, hold it against them and from this moment forward, we're gonna have a less authentic relationship. Well, that's not really grace. That's called fake. <laughs> Right? That's called avoidance. Max Lucado said it like this, and I thought he said it beautifully. Jesus shared truth, but graciously. Jesus offered grace, but truthfully. Grace and truth um, are both equally the foundation of acceptance. And most of us have gone you know, too far both ways. Some, some special ones of us have only gone too far one way. But most of us who try to maintain that balance, I, I remember when I was a, a young youth pastor, we were running this youth camp, and we had this incredible band that came and played this um, concert for us at our camp. And I mean, we had worked on it a year and a half. And finally the day had come, and I sat there, and I was like, this is amazing. And we got all these kids in this room, and we got this private concert, and it's fantastic. And then all of a sudden, some, somebody knocked on the side door, and I thought, you know, we might... It might be the police because we're a little loud in here. Somebody knocked on the side door, and this youth pastor went over there, and these kids were sitting there, and he's like, oh, come on in. I was like, wait, you can't let them in. They're not part of our camp. And he said, why? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I guess because it was ours. And then I went, you know what? I don't know. Let them in. Let them all in. Maybe the whole camp will come. Maybe the whole county will come. I don't care. What does it matter? But that day, I, I went a little too far. The truth, the right way. There was, a, there was another time when I was a youth pastor, I went too far in grace. We had a really good worship team in our youth ministry, and uh, it was, it was, we had such quality musicians and singers, for a, and it was almost all teenagers. It was, it was really amazing what God had done here. And uh, there was a young lady we all, we all loved, and she wanted to be part of the um, worship team. And uh, she, you know, kind of got on the worship team. But, but as, as we went through, we found out she couldn't sing. And when I mean she couldn't sing, I mean she couldn't sing. <laughs> and so um, there she is, you know, a thorn among the roses, blaring out off notes continually. And it just felt, I was afraid that she would misinterpret and it felt wrong for me to tell her that um, she couldn't sing. And that wasn't the gift God gave her, and he gifted her somewhere else, and we could help her find that. It felt gracious to not tell her that. And so what we did for a few years is we just turned her mic down so that nobody else could hear it. And she didn't know. And that felt gracious. Now listen. About three years later, she moved to another state and found another church, and she went to join their worship team, and they told her the truth. And it hurt her. And it hurt her because it embarrassed her that she stood on stage in our, in our youth ministry for all that time and thought she had a gift she didn't have. 
So what I thought was grace was not grace because there was no truth in it. And so you have to full of grace and truth. And I think we've probably all gone too far one way or another at some time. The second thing is resist the temptation to define people. You know, uh, when you genuinely accept someone, you resist the temptation. Don't label them. Don't label them on how they look or how they dress or their accent. Or we try to guess people's Enneagram number or their personality type or how they vote. Listen, people are amazingly complex. Resist the temptation to simplify them because it's more convenient. It's more convenient to define, to put on a shelf, to label, to go, I know what kind of person that is. It's much easier to do that. Uh, Riley Washington is an African-American pastor who's worked most of his life toward racial reconciliation. And he says the most important statement in bridge building is this statement. Help me understand what it's like to be you. Help me understand what it's like to be you. So... There's some ways we could kind of put that in our context. Help me what it's like to be a teenager in this day and age. Help me, help me understand what it's like to be born in affluence. Help me understand the challenges that you face as an immigrant. Help me understand what it's like to be a female in a male-dominated industry. And then once you ask the question or make the statement... Sit back and listen. I mean, like, really listen. I remember about uh, 10 years ago, Alabama passed a law that was very um, difficult for, uh, at least in our immediate area and in our state, primarily Hispanic people, uh, because it gave um, law enforcement the right to pull someone over who wasn't breaking the law but with the suspicion that they might be an illegal immigrant. So the only way you could do that is just tell by the way a person looks and go, you know, they might be, so let me pull them over. And so it really, um, uh, we, we've had a, a vibrant Hispanic ministry in our church for a long time, for decades. And Pastor Manuel was, was the pastor of our Hispanic uh, ministry at that time. And so I went to him and I asked, I said, Pastor Manuel, tell me, tell me how this law has affected the people in our church. And man, about half of the Hispanic people in our church uh, stopped coming to church because they were afraid to leave the house. Tell me how, and tell me how it affects you. And man, did I learn a lot. A few years after that, uh, I had a friend who confided in me that um, they, they had struggled since uh, early adolescence with same-sex attraction. And so I said to them, I said, hey, uh, let, let's talk. Help me understand what it was like when you found out. And what was it like um, when your family found out? And how was middle school for you? And how did, how did, that, how did all that go? And then a, a, a few years later, you, you'll remember um, in the middle of the aftermath of COVID when George Floyd was killed. Uh, and man, it was very, there was a lot of tension, as you might imagine. And so I gathered some of the uh, black leaders in our church and I said, help me, help me understand what this feels like. What does this feel like to you? Like, like how, how, how does it feel to be in this climate and to look at this reality and, 
you know, how does, how does, help me understand. And, and here's the thing. I wish I could tell you that every time in my life um, that I should have asked those questions that I did, I, I didn't. I haven't. And, and I haven't by a long shot. But I will tell you this. Every time I have, I have learned so much. And it's made me a more empathetic person. And it's made me a person of greater understanding. And watch this. And it's helped me to better accept people who aren't like me. It's helped me to extend the acceptance that I've received from Jesus Christ to other people who aren't like me. Here's the amazing thing about this walk of faith. God never called you to save the world. Aren't you glad? There's one Savior, and it's not me, and it's not you. God never called you to save the world. He never called you to try to fix people. Right? He called you to entrust him with them. And here's the thing. There's nobody I've ever met who works really hard at trying to fix someone else that's happy. I never met anybody who tries to fix somebody else that's happy. Because you can't work on somebody else long enough to make yourself happy. What you can do is you can accept them in Jesus Christ and you can love them and show them the love of God and you can entrust them to God's care. And man, that will release a contentment. If there's anybody in the world who's ever lived who understood humanity's hypocrisy and brokenness better than Jesus, who who would it be? Jesus understood it better than anybody. And he understood the solution. He understood what the true need of a person's heart actually is. Yet, you'll never find him pushing it on anybody. You know what he did? He gave them the space and the grace to realize it. And to come to an understanding of it and to receive the acceptance that Jesus gives. All right, here's the third one. Reject the belief that you're morally superior to others. Now, I have to, I have to explain this one a little bit because everybody goes, I don't feel like I'm morally superior to anybody. Well, ever? Even with a remote control in your hand? While you're driving on I-65? Give me a minute. We live in a toxic culture of outrage. And, and, and we express, when we express outrage at the Matthews in our life, it feels so good. It feels good. Because after all, they're wrong and we're right. But does it do any good? We have outrage on the interstate and outrage on the airwaves and bumper stickers that scream outrage and media outrage and social media outrage. I don't know how many social media posts I've read. You know, truth bomb, boom. I'm just saying. And both sides of every issue seem to be saying the same thing at the same time. We are better than you, we are smarter than you, and we are morally superior to you. I don't know if that might be relevant in a coming election year or not. 
or Thanksgiving when you eat turkey this week. But let me, let me read you an interesting verse that I didn't, there's a hidden truth in this passage I didn't see for decades. And once I saw it, I can't unsee it. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. We Usually we stop right there. But this next verse is very important. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now here's what's interesting. Why, why would a person who's restoring someone else who sinned be tempted to sin? That seems like a paradox. If you're restoring someone who's failed, it's not like you don't see firsthand the pain of sin. It's not like you can't witness in their life. There's shame, there's embarrassment, the public knows. It's all out for everybody to see now. You see the loss in their life and the damage in their relationships. You think everybody would back up and go, no, 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 not me. I don't want that. Why is it that you think that the restorer is vulnerable to temptation? And what kind of temptation might it be? Here's what I think it is. I think it's pride. Because in the moment of restoration, the restorer is morally superior. And the restorer says... You're wrong. You're the one that did wrong. I didn't do wrong. You sinned. I didn't sin. You're wrong. And I'm right. And God is using me to help your poor, broken little self find a new life. And I'm so, everybody wants, doesn't it feel good to be self righteous? Self righteousness always feels so good. It feels so good to be in the clear. It feels so good to be on the side of what seems right. It feels so good to stand on social media and be in the middle of culture and just scream at all the dumb, ignorant people and how, how uh, morally uh, small they are compared to whatever the latest agenda is. It feels so good to just air it out and ventilate it. Self-righteousness feels that way. It feels so good. But boy, when you step in that arena, pride creeps in and judgmentalism creeps in, and that's how you become a Pharisee. And when we're convinced we're right, we can justify treating other people with hostility because after all, they're wrong and we're right, and they deserve it. They deserve it. They deserve it. Just lay on your horn and just let them have it. Why? They deserve it. They're wrong. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus never approached me that way because he was right and I was wrong. And he never looked at my life that way and he never said, blast him. We've been waiting for the chance to crush him. Now crush him. You don't see that anger in Jesus at all and you ought not to see it in any of Jesus' people. Amen. Galatians 6, 3 says, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, which is always, can I amend that? They deceive themselves. 
You know, when, when, um, when our kids were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, um, it was overwhelming. It's called the data disease because the only way to manage type 1 diabetes is to um, take in uh, hundreds of pieces of microdata every hour of every day of every night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and as you're constantly taking in this microdata, you're making these little micro adjustments all the time trying to balance something that you know your pancreas is supposed to do. And it's overwhelming. And we received the greatest advice from one of our trainers um, early in the process. She said to us, when you're taking care of a diabetic child, our youngest was five years old when he got it, she said, um, don't allow the amount of mental work that you have to do to overwhelm you uh, and you forget that your child is first a child and then second a diabetic. Man, that was so helpful. And, I, and I've, I tried. I've tried to do that. I've tried to live that way. But I see a spiritual truth there. What if we were to approach people as if they were first people? And then whatever label life or they or you or anybody else could put on them. Wouldn't that be amazing? If we could treat people first as people and then as whatever else is going on. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. I think that one of the best ways that we can um, do this one another, express acceptance, is treat everyone as an equal to ourselves. There are no little people, littler people. There are no smaller people. There are no less important people. There are no them and they. And there's, there's all of us. We're all on equal ground. And when you treat other people as equal to yourself, and this scripture even suggests better than yourself, man, that communicates a beautiful acceptance that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Dr. Mark Rutland, who wrote a book called Streams of Mercy, uh, tracked this um, survey that was done in America that was trying to figure out what are the, what are the words that Americans most um, like to hear. And he said he guessed number one, but he could have never guessed what the second and third one was. Number one were the words, I love you. That's, how can that not be number one? He guessed that. But he said, number two and three, I, I could have never guessed. The second one was, I forgive you. Here's the third one. Supper's ready. <laughs> you know why I love that? Because hardwired into the human DNA is the is the perfect condition for the message that God has. He comes with love. He comes with grace. And he comes with an invitation 
to dinner to fellowship with him. What we've received in Jesus is amazing. And here's the thing. If you won't work so hard on trying to fix people and you'll work harder on trying to accept them, do you know how much happier you'll be? (laughs) He's so much happier. So here's my challenge. Yes, on Thanksgiving week, we have a challenge. Here it is. Every day when you wake up, between now and next Sunday, just whisper a little prayer and say, Lord, help me to express the acceptance that you've, you've given to me in Jesus Christ. Help me to accept, give someone acceptance that needs it. And look, there'll be a lot of living rooms on Thursday morning that that's going to be really important because there's people that come from all walks of life to Thanksgiving. And it just might be important right there. It might be important for your spouse. It might be It might be a kid, an adult child that's coming home after being away for a long time and there's tension. Man, wouldn't it be great to set whatever issue there is aside and first offer acceptance? I'm so glad you're home. So glad. Period. No, but while you're here, Stand with me this morning.